Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week we're discussing workplace skills and how they were changing. With me to discuss that is Lizzie Crowley, Senior Skills Advisor at CIPD. Uh, Lizzie Crowley, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. So just to start us off, how are the skills that are needed in the workplace changing? I think we've seen a number of things. So rapid increases in technological changes alongside wider demographic and societal shifts have undoubtedly increased the demand for specialist technical and digital skills. But at the same time, what we've also seen is an increased demand for a broader set of transferable skills. And essentially in many cases are the uniquely kind of human capabilities such as empathy, critical thinking, resilience, problem solving, teamwork and communication. And these skills are really essential to how people work effectively together in organizations and how they engage with external customers and stakeholders. And given that the lifespan of uh, the average lifespan of a tech skill now is just around 18 months, even organizations that are dependent on those deep technical skills need to have employees who are resilient, agile and able to learn and continually adapt. So just before we dive into some of those skills, how are we measuring the changes in skills that are needed? I mean, are we confident that we know now what will be needed in, in the workplace of the future? Well, I think we have a relatively good evidence base around um, the kind of current patterns of skills demands. So, you know, we've got we, we regularly survey many employers across the UK. I mean, the last survey released by the government, you know, surveyed some 18,000 organisations and it found that it was consistently um, these broader transferable skill sets, which topped the list of skills when employers were reporting recruitment difficulties and skills shortages within their current staff. Staff. However, you know, when you when you take the kind of future focus lens, things do become a bit more fuzzy. And, you know, skills are quite notoriously difficult to forecast. And even even indeed, just basic employment levels are quite a difficult thing to, you know, put a put, you know, put a prediction around. But I do think that, you know, what we've seen is that there have been a huge number um, of studies using incredibly different sort of uh, uh, research methodologies. And, in, and even though, you know, they do predict that, you know, there are some specific elements of, you know, technical skills that will be increasingly important. It is, again, these broader skill sets which seem to top the list, uh, yeah. no matter what study you look at. So focusing on some of these broader skills, some of these human skills, to what extent do higher education and, and indeed further education help prepare their students with these skills? Well, I think on the whole, a lot of institutions do a relatively good job here. Um, if you look at, again, at some of the data that I've just already mentioned, employers, when they're asked about how well equipped um, university and college leavers are for the employment market, um, many of them say they're either relatively prepared or well prepared for, for, the, for employment. However, I mean, there, there is much more that we need to do here. And there's certainly a lot of room you know, for improvement. I mean, if you take the, the case of um, computer science graduates, just as an example, it's interesting because they're actually some of the most in-demand skill shortage areas that employers report you know, in terms of the technical skills that they say, that they say are difficult to find. However, 
six months after graduation, it's these graduates who are most likely to be unemployed. And previous research um, into that has suggested that it's because they don't then they don't have these skills, um, these softer employability skills when they enter the jobs market. Um, so there's certainly more that universities and colleges need to do. And this is not just about you know standalone employability courses, which um, you know it's about embedding the development of these skills across the curriculum so individuals have a chance to work in teams to solve complex problems to to present um, and they're given those opportunities to practice uh, regularly um, throughout through th well throughout their education um, career I think sort of secondly is the opportunity to be able to build these skills through real experience of the workplace. If you look at a lot of the long-term trends with um, uh, the youth labour market, there's been an absolutely massive contraction in the number of young people doing Saturday jobs or even doing any form of paid experience, work, work experience whilst at university or, or, or any stage of the education system. So there is a need for institutions to work much more effectively with employers to actually open up opportunities to build these skills, you know, in an employment context. So you've picked out computer graduates as an example. Is the reason for the, the trend that you were talking about something to do with the way that computer science is taught? Or is it something to do with the, the typical skill set that people in computer science have? Or is it some combination of both? Yeah, I mean, those things are always sort of difficult to um, get to the heart of. Is it a selection bias? Are people more likely to go into computer science courses uh, and have a deficit in these skill areas? Or is it because, you know, sort of they're not, uh, uh, they're, they're, much, they're more unlikely to be taught these types of skills than, for instance, say, a, a social science graduate, um, which in many cases, you know, you could see the, the, that, um, I mean, I, I, I did sociology and I, I don't like to, don't like to, um, you know, to reduce things to anecdotes, but uh, many of the things that you're learned, uh, you're taught in, in, in socio uh, sociology is around kind of critical thinking, interrogation of data, you know, sort of, uh, but, you know, sort of again, what the evidence suggests is that um, it is these broader skill sets that employers said were lacking amongst these graduates. So it wasn't that they don't, didn't necessarily have the up-to-date technical um, knowledge, although employers, you know, have uh, um, pointed to that as, as a problem with, with um, you know, the speed of change in, in, in the education sector. But it was these skill sets. So I do think, you know, sort of... Um, it's probably a bit more research that needs to unpick exactly, you know, why that is the case. We talked about the educational system giving sort of graduates into the employment system. And, and you started by saying that many employers think that more or less graduates are ready for work, which is great to hear. What are the responsibilities that employers should take on early on in terms of training some of their staff? I think sort of one of the big problems here is that, you know, even though we have a lot of employers saying that, then you kind of look at other evidence sources and, you know, they complain <laughs> substantially about, you know, a lot of the kind of softer skills of, of, of school leavers and new entrants. I think so from an employer perspective, what they really expect from the education system is for it to deliver um, someone, in, you know, someone who actually has a good foundation in basic skills, basic literacy, numeracy, digital, 
skill and with these, you know, more softer kind of employability skill sets. And then I think, you know, sort of the responsibility of the employer, yes, is to train for those technical or job specific skills that, you know, that 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 individual might not have. But I think, you know, lots of employers aren't training in the UK employer training has been in decline for you know sort of 20 years or more and so they're not investing in their workforces to the extent at which which they should be and partly you know about what they need to do so a lot of money is actually spent on induction and compliance and health and safety related training but there's actually much less spent on that um, targeted training to you know address specific technical skill gaps whilst in employment and then I think secondly from the employer perspective it's not just about providing opportunity learning opportunities it's about creating a workplace that embeds learning in the way in which you do things so that's really thinking about how you how are you designing jobs and roles which actually provide individuals the autonomy uh, to problem solve work in teams and whether there's you know, the tr- enough trust between managers and employees that enables them to be able to try out new things and not get penalized so there, it, there, there's a lot more that um, we need to be doing to create those types of workplaces in the UK, because um, we actually are really quite low if you look at um, how we design work compared to in, the, in those measures compared to many other um, European countries. So what are those other countries doing that we're not? Is it government action? Is it uh, greater work from trade associations, uh, what, what's the secret of their success that we can learn from? Take one example, I suppose, if you look at um, Finland, they've been heavily investing for 20 years or more in supporting smaller employers develop uh, the types of workforce practice that that I've just been talking about. So that actually means a considerable level of investment um, with thousands of employers uh, over a long period of time, supporting them in their human resource practices, um, in their product market, market and growth strategies, and then supporting them design or the kind of training um, and activity that actually helps facilitate those two things. So I suppose in in the UK, we haven't really done anything like that. We don't really address the demand side of the skills problem. We have spent a lot of money um, increasing the supply of graduates, for instance, into the labour market, but hardly any money on actually sort of how well those skills are then used in the workplace once they've been produced. And to do that, you really do need to engage with firms and do that kind of joined up business support with um, human resource management, um, if you are really going to actually tackle that problem. And do you think that some of the work that the government's been talking about, for example, with the uh, revised industrial strategy or the work guarantee scheme, are are those steps in the right direction? Have we got enough of uh, of a way forward to take some of these things on? I think one of the big stumbling blocks in the UK is that we don't have there, there isn't a skills strategy, a national skills strategy, which actually positions skills in an, in an ecosystem approach. So it's about that interaction between supply and demand, and and you know the role of education institutions and employers. So I would say that there's there's definitely some areas where the policy has shifted in the right direction. 
So if you look at some of the uh, some of the activities in, in the industrial strategy, um, they seem relatively sensible. However, you know, it's quite a long way away from what, for instance, the OECD have been recommending for decades now, uh, which is about creating this, uh, you know, a skills ecosystem approach a lot of times at a local level. And I think that's where we've seen a more positive direction by um, city regions and, and, and mayoral combined authorities. And you said earlier in your remarks that employer training had been in decline for many years. Um, why, why is that? Is, is that to do with the nature of our economy or, or lack of government action? Because clearly it, this isn't just about government putting things in place. If employees aren't, I mean, I'm going to be blatant, but if they're not interested in training, mm. that, then it's not going to help. Now, clearly they are interested in training. But why, why is that training in decline? Well, I mean, it is a complex area, but, you know, sort of there's probably sort of three main explanations for it. One is that you kind of already hinted at is that we've seen a, a shift to a, a more low skilled employment model. So, you know, evidence suggests that actually training times become proficient in roles have declined in the life of the last 10 years. So there's a lot of businesses who have developed business models which actually don't really demand, um, you know, very high skill levels. Secondly, I suppose that there a more positive shift among some organisations is that they've found other ways, more efficient ways to to train individuals, and that goes back to what I, I spoke about before, creating those those right those workplaces which actually develop skills, but it's not through you know targeted training investment that's through how they're designing work there are various competing explanations but I say on balance it's because there's been a bit of a shift towards a low skill equilibrium in the UK. So we talked quite a lot about the start of people's careers and the educational system but do we have the right structures in the UK and the right incentives in the UK for lifelong learning and CPD and training and so on I mean are they available when and where people need them? I would say that um, we don't at the moment. Uh, we do front load human capital um, development in the UK compared to other countries and, and learning just rel- stops um, around about the age of 25 and it continues up until 50 um, in you know, some, some, some other European countries. So I don't think the incentives are there. And there have been some positive developments recently with the government uh, um, lifetime skills guarantee, which provides um, training up to level three. But, you know, that still doesn't really crack the um, engagement nut, uh, which is many cases, um, individuals who've had bad experiences of schooling, uh, for example, and, and they're relatively low skilled, to, to re-engage them in learning, and particularly learning that might be full qualifications and so on, is going to be, it's going to be incredibly difficult. So I think we do need um, better incentives to encourage individuals to invest in their learning across their life course. And whether that is trying to maybe go for a model such as, you know, a learning a skills account, uh, such as uh, they've been using in, in Singapore quite effectively by providing sort of access to bite-sized, flexible, personalised digital learning opportunities, as an example, or through, for instance, trying to encourage employers to invest more in skills development. And obviously the apprenticeship levy was introduced as a mechanism to try to encourage employers to do that. 
but it's been far too un inflexible. And I think, you know, there's been some recent research out which shows that actually it's created a lot of perverse incentives in the system. So it's, you know, encouraged employers to uh, gold plate their existing schemes as apprenticeships as a way in which to claw back money. But actually, kind of what would be a much better way to address, for instance, leadership and management failings is much shorter, focused, bespoke type accredited provision rather than expensive, lengthy apprenticeships. So I think we need to think about the structure of, of the apprenticeship levy going forward and whether it's really delivering on that ambition to increase employer investment and training. Yeah, no, I can see that. Well, we got to this point in the discussion without mentioning COVID, which is something of a miracle. But what do you think the implications of the COVID pandemic are to this whole area of, of skills and resilience and so on? Well, I think sort of the first one, um, if you're thinking about the net, the big negatives, you know, youth unemployment is going to have considerable impact on, on young people and the youth labour market. And there's huge long-term consequences for a period of unemployment when you're young with regards both, you know, your skills development, but also your future earnings potential and your increased risk of you know, future spells of unemployment. So that there's certainly um, a big issue there and also the kind of employer opportunities to support young people develop broader skill sets whilst in education have all dried up. So massive decline in uh, graduate recruitment, a decline in apprenticeships to support labour market transitions and also sort of no really internships or work work experience happening. So I think that's some big negative things. And also, obviously, for people who work in certain sectors of the economy, COVID has accelerated uh, some of the, the pre-existing um, trends within those sectors. For instance, if you take the case of retail and the shift to online as an example and what that means for employment levels within the sector. But, but I think there has to, we have to think about some of the positive here too. And I think there are some really quite big silver linings. So with the case of um, digital learning, so you've seen an absolutely massive swing and a massive shift to provide learning sort of any place, any time. And that was never realised before the pandemic. It was always people thought it would take off dramatically, but we never seemed to reach that. And I think now, now though, that that's certainly something that has happened. And people have seen the benefits of being able to provide learning opportunities that people can learn flexibly. And I think sort of the other kind of big positive that we've seen is in creating that fle workforce flexibility that was really lacking um, in the UK before. And that's not, and I'm not saying that it's not, it's not working flexibly to have to work at home 100% of the time. And if that was the future, it would have big implications for skills development because young people, many, in many cases, learn skills by observing others. But it has opened up the opportunities to be able to have more autonomy, more flexibility within work. And those things are better for individuals and they're better for um, employers as well, because they create more happy, satisfied staff um, who are able to have more flexibility to invest in their skills and, and more time to do so. All of that brings me to sort of the, the last question, really. What do you think the government can do? over the next 18 months or two years, as we emerge from the pandemic, to ensure that the individuals, particularly those most affected, have the skills that they need going forward? I think 
the first area that needs to be uh, looked at is the um, sort of skills portal and, and the national retraining scheme. It's not really sufficient given the scale of the challenge. So, you know, sort of we need to have a system that does provide, you know, that those types of learning opportunities, but is linked to, you know, sort of strong employer partnerships um, and job brokerage and careers advice. So it's much more intensive and targeted. Um, secondly, I think that um, on the youth employment side, while the kickstart is a good first measure to, to introduce, it would have been better if it had a skills, skills um, element as well at the heart of it. So, young, so there was a training element to that programme. And I think also that is the case with um, the new sort of job uh, support scheme that you know, many other countries, for those individuals who weren't working, if they weren't doing their, their hours, there was a requirement for them to engage in training. And we didn't do that in the UK. And I think that's a big missed opportunity. And finally, we have an FE white paper coming out um, in the autumn, apparently. And I think that really offers the opportunity to reverse the 40% decline that we've seen in further education and to really reinvigorate that sector because that's got a key role to play in addressing the technical um, and soft skills gaps of, of the UK. Fantastic. Well, many things that you've mentioned, let's see how many of those the government take up uh, and no doubt we'll see that FE white paper when it comes out. Uh, Lizzie Crowley, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week, my guest was Lizzie Crowley, Senior Skills Advisor at CIPD. Lizzie was also a speaker at an event held by the Foundation this month entitled Skills Resilience in a Changing World. A recording of that meeting, plus the meeting report and slides, are all available on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. On the website, you can also find details of future events, all our blogs and, of course, all editions of the FST podcast. Next week, I'll be speaking to Priya Gua, venture partner at Merrion Ventures, about future priorities for UK research and innovation.